Treoso, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 203, Jemima Nicholas and the Battle of Fishguard. So, I said last week we closed the book on the 18th century, but uh, we're going to come back slightly because there was one particular story I haven't really discussed, and it's one that I need to take some time to at least cover for this particular episode. And it's it's something that's important to the area around Pembrokeshire, and it's something of significance in the evaluation of history during the Napoleonic Wars. So I wanted to to kind of step back and, and discuss it a bit. So how about we move ahead from there, I guess. So we mentioned at the beginning of 1793, there was the declaration of war by the French Republic against many countries, including Great Britain. This obviously meant that Wales obviously was largely supporting Britain and her allies and was involved in the war. This would be the case to the present day. Soldiers from Wales would not only be active in these wars and the ones in the past that England and Britain had fought, the soon announced United Kingdom would also have succeeding wars up to the current time, which would involve Welsh soldiers. Britain had been known since the beginning of the 18th century for more of her navy than her land armies, but that was starting to change at the beginning of this century. Royal forces would fight from America to China and beyond in this century and the century that would follow in battles big and small. The French Republicans in 1797 made the decision to raid Britain via Wales, this was a part of a larger strategy, which we'll discuss in some detail. Some in the French army and in the associated political movement probably thought that Wales would have been more receptive to them, uh, in part because they were a frequent location of previous conquests and invasions in the past, but also because of their being a large peasantry there or underclass that might feel akin to overthrowing their monarchy. This, unfortunately, was pretty unreliable and a misunderstanding of the way the nation was working at the time. I've mentioned in the past, as we talk about this, that history and memory can often be confused. Human memory is a wonderful but faulty thing that can add and create and muddle an event as simple as what someone had for breakfast let alone what happened on a weekday four years ago. And it's in that measurement and that memory I want to discuss the Battle of Fishguard, which is filled with as much legend as truth, and it is difficult sometimes to separate the two. Finding good sources for this story in particular was always challenging. Thankfully, I've had a couple of sources which have been very helpful, including a presentation given by Richard Rose that actually gave me a lot of headway on some of the complications and different stories and how they measure against the reality and, and what those are. So we're going to talk a little bit in depth about the actual battle itself and then discuss some of the points that have been thought at times to be mythologized, but in some cases, surprisingly, turn out to be not inaccurate. The invasion was the plan of Lazar Hosh, who was the person who put forward an attack as a part of a main assault 
which would take place on Ireland with two diversionary attacks across the coast of Britain with the idea to divert British ships and men to those sites while the larger assault took place. This would then bring support to the Irish Republicans and their efforts against the British. And that was currently under the leadership of a man named Wolf Tone. I hope I'm saying the last name correct. It is the way it's spelled. So if I'm getting it wrong, my apologies. While the two groups would attack sites in Britain to tie up these forces, as I said, the larger force would be the one landing in Ireland. And it was really Ireland that this was all about. So the idea was is 15,000 soldiers would sail for Ireland with much smaller raiding forces of under 2,000 headed for England and Wales. Unfortunately for the French, they did not have the advantage of modern meteorology and had no understanding of the idea of the severe weather that was bearing down on them as they left France. As the larger force and the other raid were then driven back by the weather and mutinous troops, the third group, the intrepid invasion force that would land in Wales, made for the coast. The idea was to raid Bristol and either burn it to the ground or force them to pay a blackmail price in order to spare it, and then they would leave. Again, the idea just simply being a distraction. The French were led by an Irish-American named William Tate, who had joined the French cause some years ago, as he hated the British. The reason stated for why he disliked them so much was that his family were murdered by pro-British Native Americans in the American War of Independence. As a person of Irish ancestry, he had advocated strongly for Irish republicanism, as you can imagine. During historical research, it was concluded from witnesses describing Tate that he was somewhere between 60 to 70 years old. This was from the British point of view, thus giving him a sense of being kind of an old codger, to use a term, uh, and that I guess they were trying to say he was an old buffoon who didn't know how to lead his men. Uh, but far from being an old-age pensioner or a senior citizen, he was actually 44 years old when the battle happened far from being an old ancient man. Now, one of the questions I've had about this is, could it be the reason why the British population were reporting him as being elderly is maybe he looked worse for wear because of hard living. It's hard to say. And we don't really know. All we know is the interpretation given by the British versus the actual records from the French as to what his age was, unless he's lying about his age, which is pretty hard to say you're 44 when you look 60 to 70, apparently. So, with all that said and done, Tate's raiders were called La Légion Noire, or the Black Legion in English. The obvious job of these raiders was left to a relatively small force of 1,400 troops. Most of this group consisted of what is called irregular troops, these are not military forces as we would think of them, but rather a hodgepodge of various types of criminals to ordinary people to ex-royalists who had been imprisoned, and they were all effectively voluntold for this force. About 600 men were taken from the jails of Brittany and the dockyards of Brest, where they were on forced labor camps, to help make up the numbers for this 
raid group. Their Irish Republican liaison, Wolf Tone, called them the sad blackguards because of how dismal a group appeared. And realistically, they probably weren't that great. In other words, this was not a professional group of hard-bitten Marines and soldiers, but more like spare troops sent to do pointless diversion missions where losses were secondary to the effect of distracting other forces, and you didn't really have to be good to pillage and raid across an area. You just had to be driven to do it. Also, these raiders were wearing more or less old or used British uniforms, not French ones, which is an intriguing choice. Although these particular uniforms, while they were British, were not good quality and instead look, of looking their typical dark red, appeared dark brown and black because the dye had gone off. And this was the reason why they were given the name that we mentioned earlier, not because of some sort of dark deeds or the fact that they were evil men or any of that kind of thing. This raiding force was supposed to enter the Bristol Channel and land on the Welsh side near Bristol, making an easy jump-off point to the location they were heading to. Instead, the four French warships, under the command of Commodore Jean-Joseph Castagnier, landed Tate's forces at Carreg's Wasted Head near Fishguard on the afternoon of the 22nd of February. Fishguard, of course, is located close to Ireland and nowhere near Bristol. While this force may have diverted local forces, it was never likely going to be a serious threat to bother anybody. And the minute they did that, the raid made no sense. I mean, it was already making no sense because, realistically, their whole goal was to help an Irish landing, which wasn't even happening anymore. So this entire attack fell apart before it even really got going. And the reason why they didn't enter the Bristol Channel is because of the severe weather which had hit was making it impossible for them to make headway on sails up the Bristol Channel, which is the whole reason why they ended up in Cardigan Bay in the first place. So instead of being near a major port city which had influence and was a financial success point as well as a military one, now they landed in a local Welsh area in a remote town nearby, none of which were tactically or logistically important to the forces that were arrayed against the French Republic, either in France, Belgium, or Ireland, for that matter. Regardless, these troops disembarked, making landfall over the afternoon and evening, some claims were made that the French troops ascended the local cliffs without ropes, mind you, landing without any opposition because of the complete surprise that they were there. And as they ascended the heights, they were able to get themselves into a terrain which was fairly well protected and able to protect themselves from local discovery, at least for the time being. Although there is some disputes on all of this because there was what turns out to be strangely reported things where you don't know whether or not to take it as truth or something made up about various people finding them ahead of time. And in no case is there any shots fired that we can see 
up until the next day. So it's hard to believe that they were found out before that. So regardless, as they got established, they would start to send scouts out the next morning. And one of these groups of scouts led by an Irishman, uh, found a farmhouse of the Mortimers. We suspect it was John Mortimer, but there's no guarantee. Finding it empty, they raided it for liquor and valuables and kind of ruined the house, all of which was done over the objections of the Irish officer who'd been leading them to the point where he conflicted with them, trying to say he would shoot the first man that did it. And they all more or less turned around and said, we'll shoot you if you even try. So at that point, he's like, well, there's more of them than there is of me. So obviously he couldn't do much about it. This kind of set the, the, the tone of what was going to happen over the next little while. And of course, the reason why the farm was abandoned at this point was because the locals had started to see and hear about the French and that they were nearby and all of the local farmhouses were abandoned for the most part as they tried to get away from the French Republicans into the protection of the Welsh people in Fishguard and other places nearby. This, of course, meant that this would inform the Welsh population around who then began to arm themselves to repair these, to resist these invaders to their land. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. As the French forces 
now tired, hungry, and generally having lost interest in the cohesion needed to be a armed force, planned and coordinated, they were instead pillaging and ruining farms, killing livestock and stealing other food and liquor as they began to get more and more drunk, as they would find all these alcohol stores, they became less and less an effective troop, and a great many of these troops deserted as soon as they were able to find food sources. This left at the height about 600 French troops, mainly the actual soldiers as opposed to the impressed men, to manage the rest of the raid on their own. As the groups of French men made their ways inland, they started to find people, and at least two local women were raped during the pillaging that had gone on, one of which was shot in the heel to keep her from fleeing, which likely outraged the population even more. And as all this was going on, locals were arriving in their makeshift camp to try and drive them off. The locals were led by, at least initially, the son of the landowner, William Knox. Knox had raised a group of locals known as the Fish Guard and Newport Volunteer Infantry. It was made up of four companies, and it was supposed to total nearly 300 men. And the unit was the largest in the county of Pembrokeshire. However, as common in the British military of the time, nepotism and elitism often overwrote actual experience and merit in leadership. You didn't become an officer because you had worked your way up the ladder or had an understanding or an ability, it was actually more often than not that you bought your commission. And so it was the case that the son of this man, uh, Thomas Knox, was actually the one who bought his lieutenant colonel position and was now in charge of this. So this created... A bit of issues because he had his commission but he'd had no combat experience and had no idea what he was doing and it is during all of this going on that we enter the point of the story where jemima nicholas starts to appear jemima at the time was a 47 year old cobbler who with her pitchfork went out and according to story single-handedly or with a group of other women at this point it's a bit fuzzy went into the fields around Fishguard and rounded up 12 of the French soldiers and, in quotes, persuaded them to return to her town where she locked them inside of St. Mary's Church. It is thought the French troops may have mistaken these local women like her in their traditional tall black hats and red cloaks for British grenadiers who, at a distance, look like this. And when I mean at distance, I'll explain why they would think that and where this kind of association has come from. Some have put this down to the French being fairly drunk after their pillaging efforts and being a bit fat and happy and lazy, getting caught out. It would make more sense that these particular troops were some of those that had fled the location that they were supposed to be in part of because they would be fairly incapable of coordination and would likely be easily leveraged by the right set of circumstances, particularly if they were inebriated. So, of course, because of all of this, and because of the image of Jemima, 
there she is looked upon as a local heroine and has in fact up until recent years there is even a tradition of reenacting this capture of these french soldiers in fish guard over the years for the french troops now instead of facing a bunch of women with pitchforks actually now supposedly facing a volunteer militia the trouble that they were in was only more pronounced when their four ships decided to abandon them to their fate in the afternoon of the 23rd. So one day after they landed, the four ships that were supposed to be retrieving them disappeared. During the afternoon, Knox, instead of holding Fishguard, abandoned it when he realized how massively outnumbered they were, having been only able to raise half of the allotted 300 men to help with the defense, and even if the French troops were half their strength, they were still more than a match for a bunch of volunteers. Arriving in Trevgarn, Knox met with Lord Cowdor, who had himself quickly gathered men to help in the pushback of these troops, and had brought around 386 troops with him to deal with the French. The two men bickered about rank as Knox tried to play off that he was the senior officer, which I guess by rank he was, a Cowder was having none of this, and demanded that he lead the force. There is some belief that there was even a possible duel over the issue. Apparently, either way or whatever the result was, or whatever the argument was, the result was, Knox relented, and it was Cowder who led the troops, which was probably good. The force re-entered Fishguard, now with 577 Welsh troops, which still puts them at a disadvantage, but much more on guard with the actual regular forces that were still holding the height. They would likely still be facing almost two-to-one odds, and so they decided that the base in Fishguard should be protected rather than continuing on to attack or deal with the French forces as night approached on the 23rd. During the night, French officers arrived at Cowder's headquarters and had discussions around the coming day. Cowder made it clear to the French leadership that he was had a decently sized army and it was growing by the hour as troops were rolling in from the countryside. This was, of course, a complete fabrication, but some historians suggest that Cowder had already been scouting the French and knew that they were disorganized and in a rough state themselves, so thus were unable to really produce the cohesive unit they needed in order to take the battle to the Welsh. And morale was likely even lower with the loss of their escape route as the fleet abandoned them. With this knowledge and the loss of this cohesion, the French leadership may have believed the lie and mostly to save their own lives spared themselves from having to deal with an ever-increasing rebellious force and what was at least projected on the face of it, an ever-increasing English one or Welsh one in this case. They would have to accept the terms of surrender and the next day Tate and his forces were marched to Fishguard and would be marched even further beyond. There is also some speculation that as the French left their defenses, they were confronted not only with the Welsh militia, but also local townsfolk who would act as a bolster to the idea 
that Cowder had been trying to impress on the French. Either way, the remaining French troops were hauled off to prison and shortly thereafter, Colonel Knox was brought up on charges and severely censured, or at least reprimanded, for his part in abandoning Fishguard initially. That's the story as we understand it based on initial history, but Jemima's story in the succeeding years was both downgraded by some and blown up by others. It was obvious she had done something considered heroic during this time period because enough stories were now talking about it even after her death in 1832, so much so that she had received the epithet Faure or The Great. So is Jemima Faure. The issue, of course, is that anything beyond the initial story has to become, by some degree, affected by myth and legend or memory, as I discussed earlier, rather than historical narrative. The farther you get away from the original event, the more likely it is that stuff gets muddled and some of the understanding of that situation can get confused. So, the argument goes, is that our entire understanding of the role of the women of Fishguard and their Welsh outfits were seen as key to confusing the French, may have simply been a way to show either how stupid or how drunk the French were in the face of British-slash-Welsh resistance. At least that is the interpretation some historians in the late 1800s and early 1900s came to. But as time has gone on and more evidence has showed itself, some historians, such as Richard Rose, think there is validity in the argument. He points out that Duke of Rutland published in his journal after visiting Fishguard in his writings, he said, quote, Lord Cowder disposed his men along different heights in the neighborhood of Fishguard, and from what we could see, they never were once within a half a mile of the enemy. The peasants who had been assembled were so artfully arranged as to appear to the French as if the whole country had risen en masse. A letter written by John and Mary Matthias on February 27th gives even more detail. Keep in mind, February 27th is just two days after the event and one day after the surrender. In quotes from the letter, the country gathered from all parts of Pembrokeshire nearly 400 women in red flannels when Squire Campbell came to ask if they were there to fight. They said they were, and when they come near, the French put down their arms and they were all taken prisoner. End quote. Continuing, quote, We had no more than 400 men under arms, and they th thought the women to be a regiment of soldiers, about 1,400 or so. And the Lord took from our enemies the spirit of war. Another source, Anne Knight, who was visiting relatives in Haverford West, also gave a version of the story only a day or so after the events. Quote, the Welsh got together all the women and children with red flannels over their shoulders and placed them in such position that the French could only see their heads and thought it was a large army of men. And one of our officers spoke to their general and told him that they had tens of thousands of men under arm. End quote. In the letter, Anne appears to give the dates of the first appearance of the women in red flannels as something that happened on Wednesday, the day before the surrender. It might explain the use 
of women being drilled from far off. In other words, this idea that they were over a mile away to give the impression that there were more men and also would give credence to the ideas that were expressed by others later that women were pretending to be soldiers, something that would in some degree go towards some of the stories about people like Jemima Nicholas and what their role was in the war. Of course, the French who got close enough to the women to get arrested by the women probably weren't able to tell their fellows exactly what was going on. And this would create that sense, like I said, that there were far more people there than there actually were, or at least could be seen. This would be something we would see again not very long after this, because during the War of 1812, when British General Brock would use an ever-revolving group of aboriginals who would effectively come in and out of a forest, they would more or less march out one side of the forest, march back into the other side of the forest, circle around, come back out again, looking like a scary group of people, so much so that the local general who was protecting Detroit became terrified that they were going to cause unknown calamity in Detroit and gave up the city without a fight. The role, regardless of the women of Fishguard, may have been expounded by later writers trying to expand on the idea of how they fooled the French and gave them possibly more than they may have had but there is no doubt that they at least played some important role in convincing the French to surrender and that the numbers of armed men were ever increasing because of these women being dressed in the way they were dressed. And this, of course, convinced the French that they had no chance. Far from being a bunch of men in a drunken stupor who were fooled, in quotes, by women, it actually shows that there was by Lord Cowder, a great degree of strategy and thought process in order to bulk up his numbers and give an idea that they were overwhelming the French to the point where the French had no chance. So the Battle of Fishguard, sometimes called the Last Invasion of Britain, ends without major death, without a major battle, and with the French being humiliated this would be normally something that would be lauded everywhere, but it's something that I don't think gets as much play. Certainly in my research of it, you don't see a lot of talk about it outside of Welsh circles, never mind, you know, in, in the greater British public. And certainly the role of someone like Jemima Nicholas, while very important and covered locally is certainly not talked about by any degree. The amount of books written about her are not big at all. But yet, she contributed to a major victory, at least in some respect. And in that, I think that is laudable, that is honorable, and that is heroic. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. Or you can reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Or if you would like to help me by donating to the Patreon, we do have one going. 
it does help to purchase the books that I need to do this research and without which I would never be able to find these stories. Uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. Thank you all for listening. Have yourselves a great day and ta-ra. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.